This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with over 150,000 titles to choose from. When you're done with this episode, please visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for your free audiobook with a free 30-day trial membership. Today's recommendation is The Lives of Artists by Giorgio Vasari. Vasari practically invented the discipline of art history. Again, you may choose this or another one of their many titles when you visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for your free download. Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance, Episode 2, Chateau. Before we get started, I have a few corrections to make. Last week, in the 4th of July supplemental, I mistakenly said that Thomas Hobbes fled Paris during the Long Parliament. That, of course, makes no sense at all, since the Long Parliament was in London. What I meant to say was that Hobbes fled to Paris to escape the Long Parliament, since he was an ardent royalist. I'm not quite sure how I messed that one up, but I did, so there you go. Today, we will discuss the life and art of Giotto. Now, some may classify him as the first Renaissance artist, or perhaps as a proto-Renaissance artist of the late Gothic period. Whichever way you slice it, he will have a tremendous impact on the Renaissance in the next century. He is the first artist we recognize as breaking with the Gothic or Byzantine styles of the late Middle Ages. Now, very little can be confirmed about his life, and quite frankly, his art. Many of the works that are attributed to him are uncertain, and the only certainties we have is that he did complete the Scrivagni Chapel, also known as the Arena Chapel, and the Campanile, or the bell tower for Florence's main cathedral, Santa Maria dei Fiore, also known as the Duomo. That's it. That's all we can say with certainty. We don't even know the exact date of his birth, or where he received his art training. All of these facts are disputed, and part of the problem is that we only have a few sources of information about Giotto, and none from his own lifetime. The best-known biography of the artist is by Giorgio Vasari, a late Renaissance artist and the first art historian. Now, he's obviously writing 100 years after the death of Giotto, which is problematic, but Vasari also filled his biography with apocryphal stories and can be at times inaccurate. So while Vasari did much for the field of art history, he added much to his biographies and therefore we have to take him with a grain of salt. I will use his biography as a resource for Giotto and many of the other Renaissance artists we will discuss, but when possible, I will try to temper it with modern research. Now, according to Vasari, Giotto was born in 1276 in the town of Vespignano, not far from Florence. There seems to be some dispute about the exact date, but I've decided to go with Vasari on this one, just for the sake of convenience. In Vasari's account, Giotto was born to a simple field laborer, though I've seen some sources claim his father was a blacksmith. Either way, I think we can agree Giotto was of low birth. 
Now, as far as Vasari's apocryphal stories, the discovery of Giotto by the artist Cimabue is a great one. There's quite a bit of doubt whether Giotto was even a student of Cimabue, who was the greatest church painter of the day. But Vasari is obviously trying to link Giotto to Cimabue as a sort of artistic pedigree. Simultaneously, it gives Vasari a chance to illustrate Giotto's skill at a young age, and he portrays him as this child prodigy. The story goes that Cimabue was traveling through the countryside outside of Florence when he happened upon a young shepherd boy. The shepherd boy, Giotto of course, was drawing in the dirt with a stick while tending his flock. Cimabue was shocked to see such lifelike sketches from this boy and immediately resolved to make him his apprentice. He sought out Giotto's father for permission, which he excitedly gave, and with that Giotto returned to Florence with Cimabue to begin his training. Not much else is known about his training, and the whole story is suspect, but it does highlight Giotto's skill at an early age, and may help to explain how he received his training despite his station in life. In Vasari's The Lives of Artists, he relates a whole series of works that are created by Giotto, including a series on St. Francis for a church in Assisi, but there seems to be reason to believe these were not actually executed by him. It also seems that Vasari's chronology is somewhat out of whack. Come on, Vasari, you're killing me here. He places the design of the Campanile prior to the painting of the Arena Chapel in Padua, but modern scholars date the paintings of the Arena Chapel to about 1305 and the Campanile to the late 1330s. Therefore, we will begin with the Arena Chapel, the painting series that many scholars believe launched Giotto into prominence and one of the few series of paintings we can say belonged to him. I have posted pictures of these paintings on the website if you'd like to follow along with the visual aid as we continue. Now, before we discuss the paintings themselves, I would like to talk a little bit more about the art of fresco. Fresco will be the main medium for much of the Renaissance. Michelangelo will use fresco for the Sistine ceiling, as will Raphael for the Vatican apartments. In fact, oil painting will not have much of a place in our story until the Venetians borrow the technique from the Flemish during the High Renaissance. So, I guess I better explain what fresco is then. Fresco means fresh in Italian. Pigment is mixed with water and then must be painted onto wet plaster. Therefore, the artist must work quickly and often they work in sections in order to complete the piece. The plaster is placed on the wall and while it's still wet, the artist will transfer their drawing, known as a cartoon, to the wet plaster using charcoal. Some artists might draw directly with the charcoal onto the plaster while others might trace the cartoon using a series of punched holes along the lines of the drawing and an object known as a pouncer. This is a little bag filled with charcoal dust. There's a great scene of this technique in The Agony and the Ecstasy, the film about Michelangelo's work on the Sistine ceiling. Anyway, once the drawing is transferred, the artist will immediately go to work applying color. Since the plaster usually dries in a day, the artist must work quickly. Paint that is applied over dry plaster usually just flakes off, since it does not bond with the surface. Any mistakes must be cut out and fresh plaster reapplied. The pigment and the water actually bond with the wet plaster, forming a surprisingly durable surface. Due to the nature of the medium and its short drying time, Giotto had to keep his painting simple and direct, and use broad strokes of color. Okay, so do we all understand the process of fresco now? As we've discussed, Giotto was the first artist to really break with the Byzantine style during the Middle Ages. So what do I mean by Byzantine style? 
Well, after the fall of Rome, as church art evolved, artists painted figures in static and simple poses. The goal was not in creating natural figures or representations of people, but on the message of Christ or the Bible. So the focus was on the message and less on what the subject looked like. By Giotto's time, the art was flat and simplified. All the figures were in the same plane and there was no illusion of depth. Giotto broke with this very dramatically. And no longer did you just read a painting, but you experienced it. He placed the viewer within the work as one of the participants. Now you are one of the mourners following Christ after the crucifixion. The Scrovegni Chapel, known as the Arena Chapel because of its proximity to the old Roman arena in Padua, seems to be what catapulted Giotto to fame. Giotto designed both the chapel as well as the frescoes inside of it. The story goes that Enrico Scrovegni had the chapel built next to his palace as part of his penance for the sin of usury, or money lending. There seems to be a little debate about this, but we know Enrico's father, Reginaldo, was convicted of usury, and in fact he's mentioned in Dante's Inferno as one of the usurers he encounters in the seventh circle of hell. Giotto places hints of this within the frescoes themselves, specifically scenes focusing on Judas taking a bag of gold and the expulsion of the moneylenders. The chapel was used for the personal devotion of the Scrovegni family, as well as some public functions associated with the Feast of the Annunciation. Completed between 1303 and 1305, the frescoes are the only decoration for the chapel, but they detail the life of Christ from his nativity all the way to the Last Judgment. We're not going to discuss every painting, but what I would like to do is focus on one in particular, the Lamentation, and discuss how Giotto broke with tradition, laying the groundwork for the Renaissance. The Lamentation depicts a group of mourners following the crucifixion of Christ. Within the crowd surrounding the body of Christ, we see a wide range of emotions. We see the anguish of a grieving mother, Mary, as she supports the body of Jesus, while a man behind her throws his arms back in anger. Prior to Giotto, a painting of the same subject would have been very static. There would be no emotions in the faces and the figures would be very stiff. Giotto studied human emotion and how to depict it in order to give his work an added realism and emotional impact. We also see figures that seem to be solid. No longer are they flat, one-dimensional representations of people, but these figures seem to be solid, flesh and blood, under their robes. And Giotto poses them in natural poses. We no longer see the stiff figures of the earlier Gothic period. There is an understanding of the figure and how it moves in Giotto's work. Even more innovative, Giotto gives us hints of perspective. And while not the linear perspective we will see in the next century, he does understand that objects become smaller as they recede. The figures in the back are smaller than those in the front. You can see this to its greatest effect if you look at the size of the figures in the crowd behind the three Marys. In traditional medieval painting, all the figures would be on the same plane, as though they're all walking the same tightrope. But Giotto has his figures overlap, some in front, some behind, some with their bodies obscured. We even see the back of one mourner, something that would have been unheard of earlier in the Middle Ages. This use of perspective and the modeling on the figures gives us a painting that has more depth than we have seen since the height of the Roman Empire. One final bit of naturalism we must talk about is his use of color. 
Traditionally, artists would have used single flat colors, and often the background was in a flat arbitrary color or gilded in gold. There was no attempt at realism or depth. Giotto, though, used natural colors for his figures, and most importantly, he uses natural colors for his background. For the sky, he used a blue pigment, giving the painting an added bit of naturalism. It's also important to note that Giotto is conscious of how the viewer's eye travels through the painting. He intentionally directs the viewer into the work from the tree and follows the edge of the rock to the figure of Christ, who's the central figure of this painting. From the dead body of Christ, the viewer moves to Mary and then to the other members of the party until it finally reaches the angels. Just like the human witnesses to this event, we see a wide range of emotion from these angels. Giotto's style was such a revolution in painting that it would inspire generations of artists, and even Michelangelo visited the chapel for inspiration. During the intervening 30 years, between completing the Arena Chapel and designing the Campanile, Giotto became one of the most sought-after artists in Italy. He was commissioned to paint several frescoes in Rome, including one inside of St. Peter's. Unfortunately, when the old St. Peter's was torn down to make way for the new one during the High Renaissance, many of Giotto's frescoes were destroyed or carted off. Since there's a lack of artwork from this period, we're going to bypass this point of his career. Giotto began work on the Campanile for Santa Maria dei Fiore in 1334, 30 years after the original architect, Arnolfo di Cambio, died. Di Cambio was the architect of the adjacent Santa Maria dei Fiore, also known as Florence Cathedral or the Duomo. Giotto designed the bell tower to be harmonious with the cathedral, and it utilizes various colors of marble applied in geometric shapes to mimic the colors and patterns seen in the cathedral itself. Giotto would never see his bell tower completed, however. He died in 1337, just three years after beginning the project. Unfortunately, only the ground floor had been completed at that point. The project would then be headed by Andrea Pisano, famous for his work in the nearby baptistry, who would closely follow Giotto's plans. It's possible that some of the relief panels near the door are the work of Giotto, but this is impossible for us to determine. All of the original panels have been replaced with replicas, and the originals are on view at the museum behind the cathedral, the Opera del Duomo. The Campanile would finally be completed in 1359 and measure 400 feet high and containing 414 steps to the top. At his death, Giotto was one of the most well-known painters and architects of his day. His paintings would pave the way for future Renaissance artists, and his work in architecture would make him one of the pioneers of Renaissance architecture. Next week, we will look at the competition between Ghiberti and Brunelleschi, a competition that would award one man the project of a lifetime, literally it would take 21 years to complete, and cause the other to give up sculpture entirely, only to see him revolutionize architecture.